Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin. Unraveling Science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Dr. Dara Ennis, entomologist and neuroscientist at Oxford University and the menace on ITV's The Chase is my guest on the podcast today. So Dara's research focuses on studying the brains of insects to model how the human brain works. He is also the newest chaser on the quiz show The Chase and host of his own podcast, Untangling Science. So Dara, welcome to my podcast, Unraveling Science. We will definitely have to discuss our similar names later on. But firstly, thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Megan. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, okay, so let's kind of start right in and suppose, were you always interested in science and ecology and, and I suppose how kind of organisms work um, as a child or, you know, what were your kind of career aspirations back in primary school, say? Yeah, I, I was always big into, you know, trying to understand how things work and I, my my aunt in, uh, was looking after me for a week and I drove her so nuts asking her questions that she bought me a children's encyclopedia <laughs> called Tell Me Why. You know, I was, I was always that kind of kid. But I remember when I was about 11 or 12 saying that I wanted to be a marine biologist. So I haven't gone too far away from where I wanted to wanted to go. So, yeah, I, I've always been interested in how the world works and all that kind of thing. So this is no real surprise that I ended up in this career. We were saying marine biology. So was it always kind of like more animals, ecology kind of thing? Yeah, it was it was always bigger stuff. So I used to, as a joke, when I was an undergrad, I used to say the different realms of physics are, you know, if you can poke it with a stick and it does something, it's biology. If it doesn't do anything, it's chemistry. And if you can't poke it with a stick, it's physics, which <laughs> was my method of dividing up the sciences. So I was always in the poke it with a stick thing. So, yeah, I, I was always much more interested in, in yeah, in animals and, and larger organisms rather than what I do now, which is very, very, which is molecular and very different. So I suppose when you were picking your I suppose, subjects for the Leaving Cert and thinking about going to college, then like, was it all science based? No, it wasn't. I did biology, um, but, and obviously I did maths, but that was it. I didn't do physics or chemistry. And I, my mother was a history and geography teacher and I did history and geography and my best subjects in school were not scientific subjects. Oh, really? You know, I, I, like my best grades in like the leaving cert and stuff were in history. They're always, yeah, much, much better. But I was always interested in both, but at a fairly sort of cynical way, I assessed the possibilities of getting a job and things that you could do and the, the career paths in history, there's so few of them, whereas science had a real, and at that time, because I did my leaving cert in 1998 and the, the Irish sort of scientific economy was booming at the time and it, really made sense to go into science because it was much more potential for work. That's very similar to myself. I was really into kind of history and English and they would have been what I was going to do in college. But like you went all the open days and stuff and I was going, oh God, I don't know whether, like I did love the science as well, but I, I thought that was more of a career path. But I wonder, was your uh, flair for history now? Did your mom give you some grinds or was she helping you along the way? Uh, my, my mother is a natural teacher and um, it wasn't the case that she gave me grinds because I didn't really need them. I was pretty good in school anyway, but 
you know, if we were going anywhere, if we were on holidays, everything was a history or a geography lesson. You know, my mother would be pointing stuff out, just just talking to us without without even realizing she was teaching us. She always did, and because of her sort of interests, our our house was filled with books. My house had probably thousands of books in it. Like there were always books, always, and there were tons of history ones, and I just read them. So I was all, it was it was by association rather than by design. I think yeah. that I absorbed all the knowledge. And so then I suppose when you went, you, you did your undergrad in in Maynooth, um, and how was that experience? And I suppose at what point did you decide then to go down the route of doing a PhD? So I, I had a great time in Maynooth. I absolutely loved my time. Well, I spent 10 years there, so I, I'd want to. Um, and I made lots of really good friends. But I, I loved doing uh, my undergrad. And when I came to fourth year, uh, we had to pick our topics. And I had been interested in doing ecology. But to do it, you had to do the field trip, which was a week-long trip before the term started. And I hadn't signed up in time, and I was on the reserve list. And one of the people got sick who was meant to go and... I got called like the day before to go to Mayo for a week. And I had to like, I had to borrow money from my sister and scramble to get everything ready. I didn't have like, you know, uh, proper waterproof boots or anything. And we were going trekking through bogs. It was, it was a complete last minute, but it was completely life changing. So I went with um, uh, Professor Downs and um, who, and, and, Professor Griffin now, Dr. Griffin at the time, who ended up being my PhD supervisor. It all stemmed from that. Because I did that trip, I did a summer job in that lab. I got my PhD from that summer job. So it, that the fact that somebody got like sick was a real turning point. It was my friend, Nadine, actually. Uh, <laughs> but she got the flu. And I, I only went because of that. And that was a real fork in the road. Because otherwise I would have had to do like immunology or something. I wouldn't have been able to do ecology and I wouldn't have got my summer job and I wouldn't have got my PhD. It would have changed my life completely. So that that was the I I wanted to do it, but it was it was nearly an accident that I ended up doing it. Yeah, very like serendipitous, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and you know, so what would the field trip have entailed? Because I suppose ecology is so different to where I'm, you know, the, the field I'm in. It was well, it's it's so different to what I do now, but yeah, it was it was wild. So we we drove out to Mayo and it was wonderful in a way. It was all very collegiate. There was I think eight of us or ten of us and the two lecturers and uh Martin Downs, the professor, was from Mayo and he's, he, uh, he banned the radio in the van and he sang. And I mean, he sang the entire time. But it wasn't like just old songs. He sang old traditional songs all the way up to like current pop at the time. It was brilliant. But he, um, he had a lot of contacts and we did a lot of stuff about forestry, fishing. We did stuff about water pollution in um, Loch Con and Loch Corrib. We went to controlled fisheries. Um, we did a historical thing where we went to the Cage of Fields site, which is a, a Neolithic agricultural site in Mayo that's about, I think it's about four or 5,000 years old. Um, and we went to that and Martin had been the ecologist in his in his younger days that was on that when it was an archaeological mm-hmm. site so then now it's like a visitor center we went to that and all sorts of stuff we went to agricultural sites and and things it was really really great and we did um bog ecology everything it was it was a f- totally packed week but it was brilliant it was really good fun so then i suppose you you know started your phd you got into the lab i suppose as a as we spoke about it fortuitously and um, because of your friend getting sick and what was the phd experience like so it was it was really good i, I made lots of friends like uh, the the guys who were with me there i'm still friends with now and it's a long time since we finished but it was probably very different to most people's PhD experience because it was an ecology lab so we had very intensive periods and then 
downtime. So during the summer, we had to do field trials and by necessity, I had to be over like a four month period or something. So when I did my summer job in the lab, I worked on the field trials and then I went and did it. So we were working with um, pine weevils and biocontrol application and stuff. So we spent really long periods each day, six or seven days a week working on the field trials for a few months. And then we'd have downtime where we'd process data and all that, but it was a lot slower in the winter time. So we had these this big variation. So that was that was unusual because most people have a fairly standard, you know, work day or work week, and ours was very very different. And yeah, it was it was really good fun. I, I enjoyed it. <clears throat> I was given a lot of free reign, so it wasn't a regimented sort of set out project. I was given a vague idea and had to try and figure it out. I had to design stuff. I published a few papers. It it was really great. I loved it. And then towards the end, when I was trying to write up, I got a job offer, but I had to take it at a certain time. And I had to move out of my house in Maynooth because I was um, moving into Dublin. And yeah, it was it was just mad. And I had like basically a month to finish writing up and I just had to get it in. And there was no stretching of the deadline because and um, my supervisor was going, can we do another draft? I, says, I was like, Christine, I start work on Monday. I can't, this is it. It's either this or nothing. So it was really, really, really hectic towards the end. But yeah, it was it was a really good experience. I made a lot of friends. I really enjoyed it. I, I had the same things everybody else does where things didn't work. Mm. So I spent 13 months trying to do um, a, what is now a laughably out of date genetics experiment <laughs> that just didn't work. It just didn't work. So for whatever reason, we couldn't get it off the ground. I got no results. So one of my chapters for my PhD is about 10 pages long and it's effect- effectively just troubleshooting for a year and we just couldn't get it off the ground. So we abandoned it. It was, it was, it was killing me. I was going mad. So I had a year where I got absolutely nothing out of it. Totally. It was To, to give you an idea, it was AFLP, which is now a completely defunct, out-of-date um, genetics analysis tool. Because now you just sequence stuff. But at the time, <laughs> sequencing was so expensive. And our lab didn't have a huge budget because we were an ecology lab. So I was doing this crazy thing and got absolutely nothing out of it. Oh, God. So there, there, was, there was a lot of really good times, but there were times when I just felt like crying in the lab. And I think if I think pretty much everybody has that moment in their PhD where things aren't working and you just feel like you're a fake and a fraud. But <laughs> o- overall, it was a, a super positive experience. That, that year wasn't great, but the other two years were, were brilliant. I suppose, you know, that's why it is like a labor of love. You know, you wouldn't yeah. do it otherwise. <laughs> you do have to, you do have to really care and be dedicated to, to push it through. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I did it, but I'd never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, a lot of people would be in that same boat. So what was the job then you got? Cause I, I know you worked in Icon. Was that there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I worked in, in Icon in, in South Dublin for a year. So my friend, one of the guys I did, went on the field trip with, the ecology field trip, who's still one of my best friends, Tom. Um, he was working there and he got a referral bonus if anybody joined. So he was always trying to tell people there was openings. And he told me there was openings and I really needed the money. So I said, look, I'll go do this. So I was working with Tom for about a year in Icon and I hated every second of it. I did not like it. Um, just not, they, they were nice people. It was a nice company to work for. It was reasonable pay, all that kind of stuff but it was the regimented standard operating procedure science and I don't like that I like being able to you know experiment and do things that I want and you know at one point I found a flaw in one of the protocols but we weren't allowed to change it because it had to go through the whole process so we had to keep doing the flawed experiment anyway and then about sort of three or four months later they change it because it has to be approved by you know regulators and all sorts of stuff you can't stop yeah. and that it sort of gave a 
an alarm bell in my head saying, I don't want to do this. This is not, this is not what I want to do as far as science is concerned. So while I, while I didn't, I, I liked the people and everything. I didn't like the work. So um, I left because my wife got a postdoc offer in Montreal. So I just went with her. But you, you then started your own, you, you started a postdoc there in Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my wife got a, a, a postdoc offer because um, she was a year behind me in, in finishing up. So she finished up her PhD a year after me and she got an offer from McGill uh, in Montreal and she took it. So I went with her and I kind of just wandered around and contacted loads of people and I got a, a job where I was mostly self-funding. So I was trying to get scholarships and grants and things in uh, Emma Duplan's lab in Concordia. And that was forestry stuff again. So I was back working with forest pests and whatever about Ireland not working in the field in the winter. In Canada, you don't do field work in the winter. <laughs> so um, yeah. that was the same kind of thing where we were very busy in the summer and um, our lab had a Nintendo 64 with Mario Kart in it. And because <laughs> a lot of the time we were setting up behavioral experiments and things and you had to wait for like an hour or 45 minutes and, you know, just for downtime we used to play every so often and on a Friday we'd play in the afternoon and people would be coming in from the other labs being really jealous and giving in. <laughs> but yeah that was really good fun it was a much smaller lab and we were very low budget because I was funding myself but I, I, I really enjoyed it as well it was really good fun yeah, I think I'm going to switch to ecology this sounds like great crack <laughs> no, the, the money is there's no money it's really hard to get jobs it's really hard to get grants like we were building stuff in, like in both of those labs we were making our own things out of plastic and like our insect traps were made out of two litre bottles that we got from you know a fizzy drink company um, and on um, bulk and we were like sticking them together with duct tape I learned how to use, I, I, the fact that I could use a sewing machine from my home economics days in school was an asset because we had to like make little insect traps with tents and all sorts of stuff so <laughs> I spent I spent more time with uh, with a sewing machine than I did with a pipette during my PhD so. <laughs> Yeah. And it was the same in, in, in Canada. We were buying stuff in the dollar store and all that kind of thing just to try and keep costs down. It was it was great fun, but the, the money, it's so hard to get anywhere because there's no money. Because <laughs> people aren't funding that type of research, is it? Yeah, and, and the funds are low. You know, it's very hard to justify large funds because it's not medically linked. And a lot of the time, people don't care. So unless you're working in maybe the agricultural e- ecology sector, there's just, there's no... Directly. So we got some money because we were working with forestry, but it's a it's a low profit industry forestry. You know, it's it's not like pharmaceuticals or something. So yeah, it's hard to get money. I feel like it is still really important to fund research like that type of research because you know we can't just do we can't just do things just for an application or a technology. You know that kind of way. Yeah, but it's it's harder to justify on a grant. You yeah. know, if you're, like if you're trying to say you know I want to understand why this moth does this, or someone else is saying oh I want to you know look into cures for diabetes. You know you you're up against that and. You know, and uh, it's a very different world. So I'm in I'm in Oxford now, and I found it hard to adjust at the start because I came in here as a lab manager, and previously we like literally we were going to dollar stores, and now we're going I'm going into very big budget labs that are really well funded, buying, you know, microscopes that cost more than our yearly budget would have been in in Canada and things. So yeah, it, it's it was a big step. <laughs> and a big change. So I suppose, yeah, talk to me about that then, moving from kind of field ecology research then to more molecular role um, and moving, I suppose, from Canada then to England. How did all that come about? So again, and I just want to reiterate something. My wife is a better scientist than I am, always has been. <laughs> and I've always followed her around. Um, she's she's brilliant. She's genuinely brilliant. And um, 
she got so she got offered a place in McGill which is one of the top universities in the world and then she got offered a place in Oxford so we had been in Canada for three years and we wanted to move a bit closer to home and um, she got offered the place in Oxford and we just she took it and like I, I was self-funding still and I'd run out of funding and it, it was just a good time to move so we moved to Oxford and she started work straight away but I didn't so I couldn't find a job I was really struggling to find something so I was trying to stay in the same field and like I said there's no funding in this it was there was hardly any positions tons of people applying and it's super competitive in Oxford so I applied I kept a spreadsheet of the jobs I applied for just because I was really bored and I applied for I think it was 99 or 101 jobs before I got an interview. Um, it got to the point where I was applying for, you know, we I've been there a couple of months and we really needed the money. So I was applying for, you know, part-time work, by the hour work. I was trying to get jobs in shops and they were turning me down. I was getting really annoyed by it. It's like one guy said, you're just way too overqualified. And usually we use summer or Christmas hires to like get permanent staff and you'll never stay and all this. And I, just, I couldn't get any work. I was going mad. But then I got an interview in the last lab I, it was actually originally a technician's job so i was overqualified they only wanted someone with a diploma or um, a degree they didn't want to post a postgrad or a postdoc at that stage but I, I really needed the work so i because i had insect background mm-hmm. and a lab, lab the, a large part of the job was taking care of the insect stocks they hired me on as a technician and i've kind of worked my way up to being uh, the lab manager and, and postdoc so yeah I, I started as a sort of very junior member of the lab and I've just been there for so long and I'm kept going and every time new responsibilities came up because I was bored I just took them on so the lab manager left about a year and a half after I was in and I'd been his assistant anyway so I just took on all his roles it was it wasn't a deliberate move to move into molecular science or neuroscience it was it was the insect side that got me into it so I suppose then, you know, talk to me about the work that you are doing um, in a lands lab, because I know you are kind of a, you're a postdoc researcher there now, um, as well as being a lab manager, which I actually don't know how you're doing both, because we have a lab manager in our um, research group. And honestly, the place would fall apart if Siobhan wasn't there. I, I'm just uh, surprised that you can do both. <laughs> I don't do that many experiments anymore. Um, I just, I don't have the time. Not only do I have like my TV work, which means I'm not full time. I'm, I'm only working on a, I think a 90% contract or something. Um, but I've got so much management stuff to do. So I had been doing experiments. I did, um, I, I finished off what was called the screen of doom. So it was a, a genetic screen they were doing in, in the nervous system with, in collaboration with a few other labs. And it, it really wasn't working very well and it was given very inconsistent data. So I managed to finish that off to the point where we got it published. We we ended up only being able to publish about a third of the data that we collected. Um, just it, it was too unreliable. We couldn't stand over it. So I got that published. And then since then, I've been managing another screen, which is really has the opposite problem. It's so successful and consistent that we don't know what to do with the data. So it's a single molecule um, fish screen. So we're looking at single molecules of RNA throughout the nervous system and the protein at the same time of 200 genes. And it's throughout the entire intact nervous system all at once, which is frankly amazing. I didn't think it'd be possible, but we've, we've managed to do it. So we've, we've adapted the single molecule fish method and we are able to use the same probe set for 200 different uh, genes. And that, that's meant it's become possible. So what this has enabled us to do is to really understand which genes are involved in mostly in synaptic plasticity and brain development. So we're able to track where the RNA is. We can activate neurons, see what gets translated into proteins, where the proteins locate to, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really exciting project. It's really cool. And um, I've been managing that. And because it's so huge, there's going to be, 
oh, there must be 20 authors on the paper, 30 authors, because we've been doing this for years. It takes a long time. Yeah. And they, the data sets are massive. There's going to be about 1,500 figures in the paper. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. We've taken in-depth images of different compartments of all of the, the fly brain and the, the peripheral nervous system for 200 genes. So there's like seven or eight figures per gene. Oh my God, Jesus. <laughs> there's, so, there's so much data involved that we've actually teamed up with a company called Zagami or a spin out from Oxford who manage imaging and metadata in, in a sort of more intuitive way that you can browse it. So we're going to have to, we won't be able to just release it as a paper. We're going to have to release it as a collection as well because there's just too much data to handle. Yeah, and we're setting up one of our um, PhD students, Maria. She's awesome, Maria Kirilapu. She's she's not a biologist at all. She's a physicist and she's using machine learning methods to browse it in an intelligent way that you don't bias yourself because there's so much data. You'll just look for the gene you like, where mm -hmm. she's finding ways that we can, we can pick out the genes that are similar in structure or in function or what they bind to without any human bias. So if you browse the collection and you focus in on a few, it will start to draw in others, kind of like shopping suggestions on, on internet browsers and she's doing that she's developing algorithms to to help people find stuff that they're that they don't even know they're looking for yeah it, it's a really really cool system but the, the the problem with the screen this one is there's just so much data so we've had to come up with new ways to look at it uh, when will that be out do you think papers being written right now it will probably go to pre-print sometime in September or October, I'd imagine, maybe November. Yeah. Um, it, it's a big thing and it's hard to pull it together, but uh, it will be submitted for review by the end of this year. That's so exciting. Um, yes. And so I suppose, you know, bringing it back to, I suppose, the fly and, and what, why yeah. do we study um, something like this, I suppose, to model the human brain, which I think is the one of the focuses of, of um, your research. Yeah, why the fly? Well, for ethical reasons, obviously. So if you think that there's going to be nearly 2000 figures for that paper, each one of those represents multiple individual animals. So you're talking about tens of thousands of flies every year in our lab that we go through to access this data. And doing that kind of scale of things in mammals would be repulsive. It just, there's no way we could justify that ethically. But there's other reasons, very good reasons. The, the flies themselves already have fluorescent protein insertions. They've already got YFP in the different genes, which is how we screen them. Okay. This is how we're able to do it. So without that, the, the resources for mammals are not there. Like you, I could order you know, 200 fluorescently tagged genes of my choice today and they'd be in our lab in about two or three weeks. Animals, that self-sustain and you can keep in the lab almost indefinitely. Whereas if you try to do that in anything else, it doesn't work. And we wanted to do it in intact systems so cell culture wasn't really going to work um, because it's not very um, indicative of how the system works in real life. So you can grow neuronal cell lines but that's not going to tell you how brains develop in any way, really. Yeah. So we've done some experiments where we've done 4D experiments. So you have brains that are explanted for four days and we watch the stem cells and see how, how they divide and all that kind of stuff. If you did that in cell culture, it'd be nonsense. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. So we are able to get that geographical and spatial data within the organism and subcellularly as well at the same time. So to do that, you need something that's small and the fly brain is about no, 100 microns thick, 150 microns thick, something like that. So you need something that you can image from top to bottom. Is available, has its genetics done, is easy to manage, has all of these genetics tools. And the fly is the only one, basically. It's, it's, I don't think it would be really possible to do this in any other organism at the moment. 
So it's it, and then when you look at it, why flies? Why does that have any relevance to humans? It absolutely does. So the overlap in the genome and DNA is sixty percent ish. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at disease causing genes, it's about um, in single disease genes. So genes that are called diseases that are caused by a single gene mutation. Seventy five percent of them have a homologue in flies. So it's three quarters of them you can study with real relevance to human disease. So the, the one that, that my boss always tells people, which kind of amazes them, is there's a Parkinson's gene with a homologue in flies. And if you mutate the, that gene in flies, they tremor, they have shakes. But if you give them the drug you give to humans, the shakes stop. So okay. the same works in the same pathways and it's the same end result. So not only is it, you know, ethically and scientifically easier and better, it's relevant, close enough to us that it's relevant while still being a more tractable system. So it's, it's, they're great. I'm, I'm a huge fan of flies. I, I can recommend them to anyone. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that that point of, I suppose, you know, doing research or, or looking at, um, at systems in, in the intact structure that the cells would be in, because, you know, cells obviously interact with each other and they interact with their environments. And if we isolate, I suppose, one cell out, while it's important for some aspects of research, I suppose, to get that, um, like that spatial um, aspect to it is, is really important, especially in the brain, I suppose. Yeah, it is. And, and because we're studying stem cells as well and how they divide as, as part of our study, you can't really do that in, in cell culture very well. And uh, other things like cell culture lines that have been in the lab for a very long time start to pick up weird mutations and all that kind of stuff. Whereas flies, it does happen but it's less obvious. And flies have a wonderful genetic system called balancers. That means that you can stabilize genetic mutations and they don't change. So you can keep them in the population, even if they're like a negative. So yeah, it's cell lines have a lot of advantages, especially when it comes to imaging, but there are, you have to accept there are big limitations. And for the kind of conclusions we want to draw, we kind we really need an intact animal or at least an intact organ. And I'm just kind of intrigued, like, you know, where do you house the flies? Um, so we have a fly room, uh, which is specially built. So they're in control temperature rooms. Um, and the good thing about insects as well is if you change, you can change your metabolism by changing the temperature. So you can speed them up or slow them down. But they're fed on an agar-based diet. So it's agar and fruit extracts and yeast and other stuff that pours into little vials. They're about maybe 100 millimetres high or 150 millimetres high. And they're about you know, 25 millimeters wide and the, our media kitchen, the wonderful people in the media kitchen make up the media for us, pour it in. And then you just, when you want to change your flies, you tip them into the new food and okay. put them. you can't freeze them though. This is one of the, this is their big disadvantage. So a lot of other model organisms like worms and things, you can freeze them down and you can keep them indefinitely. You have to keep the flies alive and you have to keep the cultures going. So if you have a problem with your food or your incubators or something, it's a disaster. So we keep multiple copies of everything and yeah, all sorts of stuff. But they, you just tip them onto new food. That's lately has been one of my main jobs is um, making sure that the flies are okay and tipping them onto new food. Because since the lockdowns happened and people have limited time in the lab, they're reluctant to waste that time as they see it looking after the fly stock. So I've taken that on as a large part of my job. I'm, I'm taking care of them for the last couple of months. Um, and I suppose, I know you're very interested as well in like RNA um, and I suppose post-translational regulation of RNA and how that affects, you know, brain function. So I suppose talk to me a little bit about that. So quite a lot of people work on, you know, post-translational stuff. So after the protein's been made or transcription regulation. So, you know, regulation at the, the DNA level. But 
it's not all that common for people to work on RNA. I know this sounds weird, as maybe as a scientist, but I would imagine ninety percent of scientists, molecular science scientists, don't work on RNA directly at all. And I find that a bit unusual because it's so heavily involved and in you know regulation of gene expression. So it's always been Alan's thing. It's always been RNA. That's what his lab has always been about. He, we worked on embryo development. We've worked on virus. We still do work on viruses. We work on the nervous system, but it's always been about RNA. So that's, that's always been his focus. And I, I'm, I'm completely won over by him now. I think RNA is great. Um, and the fact that in neuroscience, it's very important is because of the polar nature of nerve cells, that the nucleus is way, way at one end and the synapses can be, you know, literally meters away in some nerves, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the longest nerve in our body, the sciatic one is what a meter on me, you know, it's, it's a very, very long cell. So how is it possible for anything in the nucleus to influence what happens at the other end at speed? And if you're talking about memories, your memories form in terms of seconds, not in hours. It's, mm-hmm. you know, a long-term memory can form in a couple of minutes and it's a physical object. So your brain has synaptic connections that grow. It's like a physical piece of neuron that grows and attaches. It's not a chemical thing. So um, how, how is it possible for it to do that in the time that it would take to transport those proteins is, is just isn't possible. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at local translation, stabilization of RNA. How are those RNAs activated? Because the real triggers for memory growth and synaptic growth are very localized. And that has to be controlled by RNA because if it was controlled at the DNA level, our memories wouldn't form for probably 10 hours because it would take okay. that long to shift the proteins down. So it's, it's a key aspect of, of neuroscience that is not very widely studied. So that's why we're into it. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. And I was listening because as I mentioned earlier, um, so you run your own podcast as well, Untangling mm-hmm. Science. Well, actually, firstly, before I get into that, so it's so funny we have very similar named podcasts. <laughs> so I, I have wanted to do this for ages because I think that there's, there's a real lack of non-technical science stuff out there for people who aren't into science but want to know things Mm. and it's only become more obvious since I sort of started coming on TV and I occasionally tweet about science and people are like have no idea what I'm talking about not even like what we would consider to be very basic stuff and I think one of the problems that scientific communication has is that scientists hang out with other scientists I'm married to one and we assume a certain level of knowledge that isn't there. You know, if people haven't done science since they were 14 or whatever it is in school, they're not going to know what things are. So I always wanted to do this, to have an an outreach facility. And now that I have some time and people might occasionally listen, I decided to do it. So I wanted to do a science podcast for everyone. And I gave out a, I gave out a list of names to my friends. Uh, so sort of like the guys I went to college with and my friends at home, not from lots of different backgrounds about, you know, what would be a good name for, for a science podcast. And I picked yours originally. Um, <laughs> but then I looked it up and it was taken. I was really annoyed. And I said, <laughs> okay, I'll just have to go. So uh, I had loads. I had tons and tons yeah. of ideas. And so many of them have been taken by people who've done like one episode, I, never did another one. I'm I so know. mad at them for wasting such good science names. <laughs> and yeah, I needed something that had its own, that would have its own web domain and wasn't taken on podcatchers and stuff. So this was by far the best one that we could come up with, um, even though it's basically piggybacking on your No, name. God, not at all. It, it was, uh, my friend actually sent it to me being like, did you see the, the chaser and the chase of the podcast called Untangling Science? And I was like, oh, I'm honoured. But the other thing I was going to say is I was the exact same trying to pick a name. I had sent lists and lists of my notes. And because mine is a very much a, an interview podcast, yeah. Unraveling Science just 
doesn't actually really encapsulate what it is because you're more unraveling the scientist. But I thought that was a really weird name. <laughs> so I went with the I went to unraveling science, but also there was a name. It was like sit down with a scientist or something. And someone had it and they had like one episode. And I was like, yeah. you raging because yeah, there's, there, I had I had about four or five that I tried. And I went searching and they were on like one of the podcast apps. And I'm just like, oh, I'm so annoyed at you. Yeah. You've done, and one of them hadn't even done an episode. He'd just done an intro and then never did an episode, but he took the name. And I'm just like, <laughs> I know it is. It's funny. But I know I think, um, yeah, because I was listening to what I was going to say. I was listening to your, your podcast earlier and, you know, speaking about RNA and, and DNA and and the way you kind of break it down and, you know, you say the technical name, but then you say, right, no, we're not, we're not going to talk about this anymore. You know, you park that. And this is kind of the analogy. And I think it's just so important to be able to break down those terms, um, especially given the the situation with COVID-19 and the amount of, you know, science and scientific information that's going out there that, you know, scientists should be able to communicate their work more clearly. Yeah, we need to make it more accessible. And I, I'm on the like outreach and uh, public engagement committee in, in the biochemistry department. And I got, well, I, I kind of got a bit annoyed at because I, I someone else had been doing it and I took sort of, char- not charge of it as such, I'm on the committee. But we went through and of the, there's 50 something labs in our department and a small number of them regularly do outreach. And it's a very small number. And the, the group heads themselves, almost none of them do. My boss is really passionate about this and he does all sorts of stuff. He dresses up in fly costumes and goes to schools. And, and like, he's a senior professor at Oxford. He, he does everything he can. He's a, he's a huge supporter of this. And he's a big supporter of me doing podcasts and stuff and, and all that kind of thing. So that's great. But so many people either don't do it or they do it really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea is of it being technical, is beyond them. They don't understand what a technical term is. They think nothing is a technical term. And you, if you use equations or technical terms, people will just turn off. Yeah, They're not interested. They want to know, have it explained in terms they can understand. And a lot of people are able to do outreach for children because they grasp that they need to explain this in like in very, very simple terms. But they don't understand how to do it to adults without using technical terms and without becoming patronizing and talking down to them. So it's it's a fine balance to do that. And I've kind of worked hard at it and I'm, I'm always happy for people to give me feedback. I want people to say, oh, so the first episode I did, people said, oh, there was too much information. So then I started adding in little summaries and yeah. break points to go back over what I've said. And I put blogs on, on the website with transcripts so people can read over it if they want and diagrams. And, and that's actually one of the big challenges of podcast is if I'm ever giving any sort of talk, I have slides and diagrams and animations. And when you're trying to explain it in audio only, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just need to, you need to work on it in a way that everybody can access and scientists in general need to do better than they do. They need, there needs to be more effort made to make stuff accessible. I, I'm trying to initiate a movement in our department where every time a new paper is published that the person who wrote the paper or someone from the lab will do a 60 second video in layman's terms explaining what the paper is and put it out on Twitter and have them on our website. So people who aren't scientists say, you know, I don't know, someone who has someone who works there, a friend or a person in their family is working there, wants to know what happens in the department. They can go to a little gallery of one minute video clips explaining in very simple terms. And Mm -hmm. it's not impossible. It's very easy to do. And, And that kind of thing needs to be done more, to be honest. 
And I, and I think, you know, you see a lot of these kind of tutorials going out with papers, but again, they're very technical and they're more to share it with researchers. Um, I suppose, Dara, we, we kind of want to get on to the, a big part of your career now, which is the chase. I just, I'm so interested to know how this came about. Um, I, you know, the, I suppose the interesting thing about you being a chaser is that you were a contestant on the chase a few yes. years ago. So talk to me about that. And I know there was like a lot of like controversy around that episode and, and there was a Twitter campaign all. so yeah you know t- talk yeah, to us exactly. about that so yeah i i got into quizzes here because of um my friend john conway who's uh i'm involved with the ga club here um and he has uh been on a quiz team in the oxford quiz league for years and years and they were short player and at the time i lived really close to the pub that the home games were in and they needed someone to pop up so i went up and did it. i was never into quizzes in a in a competitive way really i do them it was a pub quiz on. I loved them. Love Trivial Pursuit, all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> I, I just got into it. And part of that quiz league um, thing is that shows tend to contact quiz leagues when they need players. You know, they uh. if they like to get good players and they want to get people who quiz, quizzers to go on the show. So they put out an advert for a few different ones. And I went on one called Rebound. Yeah, Rebound, which was a, it was a one series thing that was on ITV during the day. And... I did, did okay. I ended up coming second, didn't win any money. But because I was kind of on the mailing list then, the, I, I got a mailing list saying they were looking for contestants for the chase and I and for Tipping Point. And I put in for both of them and I ended up on the chase as a contestant. And it was a very, very odd um, show, which when it went out was on the same day they were debating Article 50 in Parliament. So it was right in the middle of like the Brexit throws. And my name was trending higher than Article 50 on Twitter, which is that. <laughs> Yeah, it was nuts. So people care too much. So I was on I was on the show and I was the first contestant and I put like 9,000 in the bank and the other three people all took the lower offer and people went nuts. People went absolutely bananas. They started a GoFundMe campaign to get me the money back as if I ever had it because it's only theoretical money till you win it. And it was all very weird and I gained loads of followers and people were contacting me for interviews and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it was really bizarre. Justice for Dara was like trend. Oh, yeah, hashtag, if anyone's listening to this, look up the hashtag Justice for Dara and you'll see these weird people. Like bless them. They, they think I really, you know, was hard done by and I wasn't. I was, I won like, 1700 quid for two hours work you know and it wasn't even two hours work it was like five minutes work really I was just sitting around for most of the day so you know I was happy enough at the time we had no back door in my house and there was only a curtain into the conservatory and it was freezing so (laughs) we got a back door in before the winter came so you know quids in (laughs) but yeah it was it was very weird but I at that point I had already started the process when it aired I'd already started the process of you know, trying out for the chase. So I, I, everyone's going, oh, you should be the next chaser. I'm like, I'm dying to say, I'm trying to be, but I wasn't there. <laughs> oh yeah. So how does that work then? Is there like, did they do like a call out for, for people to apply or like? No, they called me. So I was here about two or three days, maybe after I'd been on the show to record, not, not when it aired. And Helen, who's one of the sort of chief producers on the show called me. And I thought it was a wind up. I thought it was a joke um, because all my mates at home are really big into this kind of thing. They would play pranks on each other all the time. <laughs> uh, and I kind of didn't believe her, but she knew too many details. So, you know, I was like, you're joking. No, right. So I went down for a chat, which was really a, an interview um, and did like, you know, camera tests and loads of questions. And they said, look, 
there's a few people, I don't know how many, I know there was at least two. Um, it was me and at least one other guy, but I think there might have been more who they were considering at the time. And I, for a very long time, for like 18 months, I'd go down every month or so to, you know, answer questions that they give me, do uh, trial runs of the show, all that kind of stuff in their offices, not in the studio. And when I got one wrong, they talk about how I got it wrong and how I need to approach it and things I needed to work on. I've studied really hard to build up my knowledge. And then I ended up going to screen test me and one other guy and I got the job. Oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah, so I was, I was at it for about two years before I recorded anything. And then on the first day, the first day I was in studio, I was sitting backstage to watch how a show went on just to get an idea before I did my own. And Jenny was on the show I was watching and she got every single question right. And it's the first time that has ever happened. The only time it's ever happened. And I said, when she's like, when she came off after the final and she got like not a single question wrong the whole show. I said, so... But do you have any advice? Just yeah, just don't get any questions wrong. <laughs> yeah. And like you know, because that must be like I'm just thinking about the other person who just did, like went to the screen screen test and everything, just didn't get it. Like you know, that's two years of of really hard work. It's well, I, I've no idea if if they went through the same thing as I did. So okay, we, we were never in the only time we were in the same room together was right at the end when we did the the screen test. So I, it could have been a case that he was just called in at that point or whatever you know I, I don't know um because it would be very it, it would be very coincidental that they called him on the same day that i had just gone into record so i'm assuming it wasn't but yeah and like how did you even prepare like if they're if they're asking you questions and, and you get it wrong and they're saying you know like you know here's some tips of how you how, how do you get them right <laughs> just like there's, there's some things that you have to think about when like one of the things is that this is not mastermind this is an entertainment show primarily and it's got a quiz format so sometimes they ask ridiculous questions you know to get a laugh out of brad to entertain people okay. at home uh, and they're without swearing i'd say who who the heck knows questions is what one of the producers calls them okay. kind of um but they're they deliberately put in questions that are impossible to know the answer and you have to figure it out so things like if it's a ludicrous number, if they ask how many of this and there's a ludicrous number in there, sometimes you have to look at that ludicrous number and go, that has to be there for a reason. So it's either the stupid answer that you get wrong or that's the actual answer. So everybody can go, what? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and there's some, you know, things you can learn like... I don't know, the reigns of the kings and queens of England. If you know them, you can pick up questions so you can figure things out. Um, knowing when certain classic books were published, what year movies were released. It might not directly give you the answer, but you can figure it out from there, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, they, they were pointers to that. It's like, you know, if it's a if it's a funny quote from a prime minister, it's never going to be Margaret Thatcher because she wasn't into funny quotes. It'll be Churchill. If it's a funny quote from an author, and Oscar Wilde is one of the options. Just go for Oscar Wilde. If you don't know <laughs> that kind of thing. There are some things where that's their percentage answers. They're the they're the one to go for. If it's a toy company, it's probably Lego. You know that kind of thing. If it's a Danish toy company, it's always Lego. There's there's things that you know are standard questions that come up in one way or another all the time. And they learn me. They learned. They got me to learn. Not learn me. You know, they got me to learn how to recognize that mm. those particular questions. 
after that, it was just study and learning lists and all that kind of stuff. Because I, I read that you kind of make up rhymes and stuff as well to try. Yeah, yeah and, and little mnemonics and, um, you know, link things together and uh, all that kind of stuff. Any, anything you can do to make a fact more interesting and personal to you is the best way to learn it. Lots of people ask me, how do you memorize stuff? Make it personal to you. Make it something that you link with someone. So, you know, if a person has the same name as one of your brothers or sisters, link it to them. And then you'll remember that their yeah. first name is this. If, you know, a particular year, whatever, with star signs, I link them to people that I know, you know. So I, I know the star signs because, you know, my mother is a Pisces, so it has to be in February, that kind of stuff. Ah, okay, yeah. You know, and, and you, you don't try and learn the list flat. If you can't help it, some things you have to just learn flat. But if you can try and link them together and if you can link in, you know, stories and authors and kings and queens as being around at the same time, that gives you a map in your head that you can refer to. So you can go, okay, it's not this person because they were too early because they were born at the same time as this other, and that kind of thing. You can string things together. So I've learned, say, like the composers, I've learned the major composers in blocks together who were all around at the same time. So if the question says, in 1856, which composer, blah, 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 I'll go, okay, the ones in the middle of the 1800s were all these. Well, that one was in the 1900s, so it can't be that one and that kind of thing. And I link things together that way. So... Beethoven's funeral. Schumann was one of his pallbearers. And Schumann is someone who like has shoes on his feet and he was walking with the coffin. So he's the Schumann at Beethoven's funeral. And that's how I remember it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's stupid, but it sticks in my head. And whatever you can do to make it stick. And before, uh, like before an episode, like how much prep do you put in? It's not before episodes. It's constant. God. Um, so it, it's too big. So I'm on, I'm in five different quiz competitions. So I do quizzes all the time. So I've got one uh, pop culture one tomorrow. I'm in one of the Irish quiz teams for the Quiz World Cup. I'm on the, still on the Oxford team that I was on, my very first team. I'm on an online quiz league team with another team in Oxford. And I do another individual quiz thing, the hybrid one. Um, and then, oh, general knowledge, so six. So I'm in six different quiz competitions that roll at different times throughout the year. So I do quizzes all the time. I learn lists. I read books. I, you know, all that kind of stuff. I've started reading all the classic books because they come up and I, the, yeah, it never ends. Do people like the other like teams hate to see you come in then? No. Uh, in, the, in, the te- in the terms of like competitive quizzing, I'm kind of mid-table. I'm not near the top. I'm in the I think I'm in the top 10 ranked people in the Irish Quiz Association but that's only a fairly small number of people um I think I might be 10th or or 11th something like that but in terms of you know quiz competitions my my Oxford quiz team is mid table you know the team that wins it have beaten have mastermind champions and won eggheads in terms of like the the chasers no chance like I played Anne and Jenny's team with my online quiz team and they battered us <laughs> they, um, they absolutely hammered us you know Paul was British quiz champion a few years ago if I entered the British quiz championships I wouldn't be in the top 100 you know it's it, I'm not that good I'm really good on the show because the level of questions is the kind of questions that I like I'm kind of a pub quizzer okay. but when it gets really hard the proper tough quiz stuff I'm out I, I don't know that <laughs> and, and how do you find just being in a television studio and that kind of pressure well I don't care um, I don't get, this is probably why I got the job. I don't really get stage fright. I don't get nervous. I get excited. I want to do it. I love doing it. I don't get intimidated by the money. Don't care. Not my money. Yeah. And I just sit down and have a laugh. I, I 
really, really love doing that job and beat the chases is even better because the others are there with me. And if I don't know the answer, just put my hands up. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 not something. This is one of the main reasons why these other people who are way better quizzers than me don't do this job. It's because if they go on camera, they panic. Okay. And we've seen, we've seen it a lot with people, with contestants who are genuine, really, really good, clever people who quiz, who are brilliant in like, you know, the quiz championships where they're sitting writing down stuff. But when they realise there's like five million people watching them and they just go to pieces and that doesn't affect me. So uh, not through any work. I haven't, this is not an achievement. It's just something I've always had. Like, you know, your first episode was, I think, the most watched episode of The Chase ever. It was like 4.9 million viewers. What was yeah. it like watching that, even just at home? Like, were you was your phone just blowing up? It was weird. Yeah, yeah. My phone went mad. Um, and like, I gained like 10,000 followers in a week or something <laughs> online. It was bananas. Mm. But yeah, I, I had a lot of people contacting me um, and... I hadn't been home in like a couple of years until last week. So I had a lot of people like stopping me in the street and things, which was really odd um, that I wasn't used to. And like things like, you know, people I've known for years, um, you know, my friends, parents and stuff uh, <laughs> chatting to me and saying, you know, I don't want to be bothering. And I'm like, I know you for 40 years. What, what, of course I'll chat to you, you know, but yeah, it's, it was very, very weird watching it um, the first time, but now it's it's routine. I'm just used to it. So, so speaking about you coming home, like, you know, last week, I, I kind of did want to chat to like Irish researchers abroad and, and you know, do you miss not being in Ireland? Do you ever see yourself, you know, coming, settling back home or do you think you'll you'll stay in England? No, I, I like being able to visit Ireland. I, I hadn't been home in two years and I miss the people, but I, I don't imagine we'd ever move back. The the career opportunities, like I wouldn't be able to do the chase. I have to be resident in the UK for that. So that that on its own would preclude it. But like the, the career opportunities here, especially around Oxford, are just immense. Um, we wouldn't get that here. You know, I'm, I'm happy here. We're settled. We, we own our house here. And I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I went home. Um, and, and as well, I've been away a long time. It's not the same. You know, I'm, I'm home and I'm visiting and it's great to see my friends and stuff. But it's not going to be like that if you live there all the time. You know, it, it's it's different. And there's, I, I just don't see it. We've been away for too long and I think this is home now. So we, we'd go back to Ireland to visit regularly. Uh, yeah. And I could, I could maybe see myself maybe retiring to Ireland or something or you know, moving there or spending a month there every summer, but not not permanently, no. And sorry, one other question I want to ask you about the chase was, you know, the way uh, some of the chasers do kind of other reality TV kind of, you know, programs. Do, would you consider doing anything like that? Uh, probably not at the moment. Um, but, I, I, you know, I've had, uh, I had an offer to do Panto this year, which I had to turn down. So I don't have the time. That's a lot of time. It's like yeah. two months of your life. But, you know, I'd never rule it out because if I got a cool offer for a cool program, I'd do it. I don't see myself going, doing what Anne did and going into the jungle for a month. It just doesn't seem like the kind of thing I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. I can't dance. I can't ice skate. So strictly um, dancing on ice are definitely out. But I, I, you know, if there was a charity thing, I'd do it. You know, I'd like to do Bake Off. That'd be good crack. Yeah. Um, I like cooking and stuff. Um, I'd like to do something like that. I'd, I'd love to, what I'd really like to do is do a science program. I'd love to do that. And I, if I could get either a guest appearance on one or my own show, if I could, I'd love to do that. But as far as, you know, the three weeks in the Big Brother house, no, I don't think I, I, <laughs> I, I have two jobs and a family. I, I don't have the time for that. Yeah, it must be so hard to juggle, I suppose, everything. Like, do you see yourself moving more towards kind of the, the chase and, and, and less in the lab? Or do you think you'll keep up juggling them? I, I'll try to keep up juggling them, but it kind of depends on how things pan out. At the moment, the chase 
studio time is actually quite low. You know, we I only need to be in studio for maybe 30 or 40 days a year. It's not okay. that much. I do a lot of work in the background, but that's in the background. So I, it's not too much of an effort to juggle them at the moment. I might try and cut down on my errors in the lab a bit because I'm tired. <laughs> and I could do with some extra time off, but I, I'd like to keep doing it. I love both my jobs. The, the TV stuff, if another thing came up, for instance, if they offered me my own science show and or I got some other opportunity to do something else cool, to present something or something, then I'd, I'd consider cutting back the, the science a bit. But right now I'm, I'm happy doing both. And how did the, the menace, how did that name come about? Because it rhymes. Um, <laughs> really? So, that literally is? Yeah, so I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. They didn't tell me. So when I when they were first sort of doing the storyboard, which is what they call it, and they had pictures and stuff, um, they wanted to call me the charmer. Um, but I I was like, I like I said, I, look, I, genuinely, I really don't care. I'm pretty cool with most nicknames. But there's a, an Irish producer, Michael Kelpie, and he said, under no circumstances are we going down racial stereotypes. You might as well give him like silver buckle shoes and all that kind of stuff. So we're not calling the charmer. So it's fair enough. And Brad didn't like it either when we tried it out. He, he said he didn't like it. It'd be hard to, you know, make jokes with and stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, they then wanted to call me the professor. And I flat turn that down because going to work after uh, being called a professor will be very awkward in the in the university so um they said okay we'll come up with something and they didn't let me know so it was a surprise so when i was first coming on the the bit where we wait at the back is like a bottom of some steps because it's to go up to the platform and i was on this on the steps waiting for him to, to call you know and who are we facing today thing and when he called out, the, that was the very first time I heard it. it was when I was on camera. I had no idea what he was going to say. Honestly, I said, once the professor thing, once I said, once it's not that, and uh, I said, you can call me anything. I'll wear a chicken suit. I don't care. I just want, I really want the job. So, um, <laughs> so uh, Dara, you know, one of my last questions for you and what I ask nearly every guest now is, which I, I mean, I think you've kind of fulfilled this maybe, but if you weren't into scientist, you know, where do you think your life might have ended up? I mean, possibly you fulfill this with your, you know, your career on the chase, but I also know you're into bees and beekeeping. I'm wondering what that might be. Uh, or, or was there an, another, another path you think you might have went down? Like and I know the viewer, uh, the listeners can't hear this, but I'm actually wearing my beekeeping T-shirt at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started beekeeping this year. So yeah, I I was always into this kind of thing, but if I didn't do science, you know, it's it's a, a forgive the insects uh, reference, but it's a butterfly effect. You know, I wouldn't have gone to Canada. I wouldn't have married my wife. I wouldn't have come here. I wouldn't have ended up on the chase like that. That was a very you know, fortuitous being in the right place at the right time thing. So that wouldn't have happened. So, I, and I don't like, I wouldn't have had ambitions to be on TV or anything. So I don't know. I, I may have gone into, into history, you know, into research and history, possibly, you know, archaeology or something like that. Um, I've always liked writing. And so I might have done, you know, a history writing thing, some, something along those lines. And I've, if I was ever going to, you know, go back to college for fun. I I'd do like uh, ancient history, like ancient Rome and ancient Greece, because I really love that. Um, um, so probably something along those lines. Your mom would have been happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I never would have done uh, a very physical job because when I was younger, I went out with my brother Chunk on uh, building sites <laughs> for about a week and I was broken. And I said, I am never doing this. That was a life lesson learned. So it, it would never have been a heavy lifting job. I would have been doing something indoors, probably uh, probably a little computer. Okay, well, Dara, this has been like so wonderful, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I've learned so much, and I hope uh, I'm sure everyone will find this really enjoyable. So, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problem, Megan. Thanks a lot. 
that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.